All right, this is Jonah 1. Let me read Jonah 1. We'll read the first uh, 16 verses again of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, Jonah, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose and fled to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord, Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said, What do you mean, you, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. They said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we might know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up, hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to try to get back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Well, if we remember from last week, we were introduced to Jonah the prophet, right? who for all intensive purpose seemed to have a successful ministry, right? God had risen him up. He had gone to the school of prophets, if you will. He had Elijah and Elisha as mentors. And so he had a very privileged upbringing, very privileged, privileged life. God had sent him to be a prophet to Israel. And Israel recognized his role. They recognized his calling as a prophet. He had even success in his prophecies, right? As the Lord fulfilled those prophecies that Jonah made. Uh, Israel had lost some of their land due to their idolatry. The Syrians had come in and taken some of their land. God restored some of Israel's land back to them. And so Jonah's prophecy came true. And so Jonah, as this privileged prophet, had seen God do amazing things for the nation of Israel, right? They were undeserving people. They were God's people. God chose them, right? God loved them. But they disobeyed Him, right? And, And they turned to other idols. And so God disciplined them, but still loved them, right? And so God showed his grace on his people Israel. And Jonah witnessed this. Jonah witnessed God's amazing grace to them, even though they didn't deserve God's grace. He was a firsthand witness to God's mercy, right? And then we found out last week that the book of Jonah is autobiographical, right? Jonah wrote the book of Jonah, not somebody else. Now, isn't it interesting that if Jonah wrote his own book, why did he not write about his successes, right? You know, he could have written about his successful ministry among 
the Jews, right, and how his prophecy came true that the Lord had given him. But he didn't write about successes. What did he write about? He wrote about his failures. It's kind of like a biography of a spiritual failure, really. It's kind of the tagline you could say about the book of Jonah. And so he writes about his frustrations. He writes about his own failures. And that's extremely informative for us. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that, how his failures, how his frustrations really are a great uh, exhortation uh, and lesson that we need to hear this morning. And then we saw last week that the main character of the book of Jonah is not Jonah and it's not the whale, right? We learned that maybe when you're a child in Sunday school, you automatically associate Jonah with the whale. But really, the main character of Jonah, as of all the scripture, is about God, right? And we learned, even last week in the first three verses of Jonah, that God is the God who relentlessly pursues. The God who relentlessly pursues. And we'll see that again today as we learn more about Jonah and his fleeing from God's presence. Well, that's where we pick up this morning. God, Jonah is fleeing from the Lord's calling on his life, from God's presence. But we realize that there is no escape from God, right? And Jonah is about to discover the fearful thing that it is to fall into the hands of a holy and living God. And so my hope this morning is, is this. This is what I've been praying for us this week. That really Jonah's fleeing from the Lord is going to spell out for us in capital letters this spiritual disintegration that takes place when you run from God and you're not trusting in Him and walking with Him. You know, the word disintegration, what does it mean? It takes something that's integrated, something that's connected and pulls it apart. And that's what we see in Jonah's running from the Lord is pulled apartness, if you will, from his fellowship and his intimacy with the Lord. So that's what I want us to see this morning. And, And looking last week, Jonah was this privileged guy. He grew up in the school of prophets. He had wonderful mentors in his life. He had God's Word in his life. And we saw that Jonah had been transformed with this intimacy that he had with God. He was transformed by being in God's Word, transformed by having godly men in his life, right? And all of a sudden, we see Jonah leaving this trust and obedience that he had with the Lord. We see Jonah leaving this intimacy that he had with the Lord, his pre-Nineveh life, if you will. And all of a sudden, we meet the Jonah who's fleeing from God's presence. And we meet a man who is spiritually adrift, isn't he? He's spiritually adrift at sea, if you will. He's lost his moorings. He's lost his affections for the Lord. And we see Jonah spiritually adrift. And so that's what I want to see this morning is this this exhortation of beware of drifting away from the Lord. And so that's what we're going to look at today. So he tries to flee from God's presence, right? I think this is pretty interesting that he tries to flee away from God's presence. He tries to drift away slowly from the Lord. But you read Psalm 139, and what does Psalm 139 tell us? And I've actually got that printed out in your scriptures. What does Psalm 139 say about trying to flee from the presence of the Lord? Let's read Psalm 139. I want to just look at the first 12 verses of Psalm 139, and let's see what the writer David talks about trying to flee from the presence of the Lord. Psalm 139, 1-12 says this, O Lord, you have searched me, and you have known me. You know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. You even know my thoughts. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, right? Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before. That's beautiful language there. That's the language of a tailor that a tailor would use. You know, when you hem something, you take two pieces of fabric, right? And you run a stitch through that and those two pieces of fabric are joined together. And the idea here is 
you hem me in behind and before. Uh, Jewish men would wear robes and they would have a pocket hemmed in on the inside of their robe where they would put precious things, right? That's the language here. God, you hem me in. You're in, in God's shirt pocket in a sense. That you are hemmed in behind him before. That's the language that David uses here. You hem me in behind him before. You lay your hand. You cover your pocket. What's precious inside of your pocket, you cover it. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge, David says, is too wonderful for me, too high. I cannot attain it. Now get this. You know, you know Jonah must have had the words of Psalm 139 running through his head as he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. You know that. He was a prophet. He was well-versed in the Old Testament Scriptures, right? You know. You know he would have probably even been singing this. Psalm 139 was a hymn to be sung in worship. So you know he was probably even singing this worship song, Psalm 139 in his head, having this tension in his heart as he's running from the Lord and singing this, O God, where can I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that, that word in, in the Hebrew, Sheol, is, is representative of death and of an absence of the presence of the Lord. If I make my bed where I think you won't be, Lord, you're still there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, think about that as Jonah. You're there. Even your hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not as dark to you. And the night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light to you. I can imagine even this psalm comforting Jonah as he's in the inside of the whale, and it's all dark, and he thinks that God has left him. So you know that Jonah, as he's trying to flee from the presence of the Lord, singing this hymn, realizing that ultimately he can't flee from the all-present, omnipresent God of the universe. But Jonah did flee from the felt presence of the Lord, from that communion, that fellowship with the Lord. Jonah left the spiritual intimacy of the Lord and was spiritually adrift. He was fleeing from the prayer and the service of God that he had been used to and accustomed to as a prophet. He was fleeing from this sphere of evangelism. God was saying, listen, Jonah, I'm going to send you to Nineveh to go and preach judgment and also mercy, right? And, and Jonah knew as God's prophet, he had experienced this, right? First-hand experience, he had seen God's prophecy come true, right, with Israel. He knew first-hand account that God would be true to what he was saying, right? And so here he was fleeing from this sphere of evangelism where God was calling him. Now, think about this. When God calls you to something, you can always leave the fruit to the Lord. This is a great, oh, this is such an encouragement to me as I was preparing this week. It just allowed me to take a big sigh of relief and think, you know, I can preach till I am blue in the face, and I can yell, and I can use different illustrations, and I can stand on my head, and none of those things ultimately is going to produce fruit. It is God's Word coming to you through the work of the Holy Spirit that produces fruits. It's the Holy Spirit who produces affections for the Lord Jesus in your heart. And I can trust Him with that. Same thing with you. As you minister to your kids, or you minister to your coworkers, or you minister to your neighbor, trust the fruit to the Lord. Don't try to be a fruit inspector. You know what a fruit inspector is? You're always looking for the fruit, right? That's not your role. That's God's role. Jonah knew that. That God would produce fruit. And that's one of the reasons he rebelled. And we'll talk about that more in the next coming weeks. But he was fleeing from this gift, this sphere of evangelism even, God's, where God was calling him. And his fleeing from the Lord was very costly, wasn't it? 
What does verse 3 tell us? Jonah goes to Joppa, right? And he pays a fare. So it did cost Jonah something monetarily to try to flee from the presence of the Lord. But I think it wasn't the, uh, the, the physical cost to Jonah that I think he wants us to see here. I think he wants us to see that there's a very real spiritual cost for us when we try to flee from the presence of the Lord. You know, I can imagine Jonah paying these guys, he's transaction, gives them whatever it costs to flee to Joppa, and he's thinking to himself, Whew, that's a relief now. I can get away from what God is calling me to do. It was worth it, right? It's never worth it to try to flee from the presence of the Lord. The spiritual cost is greatly. What are some of the costs? Well, intimacy with the Lord, consequences. There are real consequences to our sin, aren't, aren't there? But you know what is also interesting? is that when Jonah was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, it wasn't without spiritual fruit. When Jonah fled, when he thought he was getting away from the presence of the Lord, God still, even in Jonah's rebellion, was producing spiritual fruit. How so? Think about what happens later on. We read this this morning. We'll see this a little bit more later on in, in the next few weeks. But the sailors, what did the sailors do? They were affected by Jonah's presence, weren't they? Jonah was a prophet. They were affected by his presence. And so the sailors, later on, what did they say? That they would vow to serve the very God of the prophet Jonah, Yahweh himself. They vowed to serve him. And so here's the crazy thing, okay? That God can use us for his glory even when our hearts are not with him. That's how powerful and sovereign God is. That God can still use us. God can use a rebellious prophet even in the midst of his rebellion for his purposes. Now, beware of mistaking usefulness for God with communion with God, okay? Beware of mistaking your usefulness for God with communion with God. But there's a spiritual condition that I think we need to talk about this morning that really even the New Testament addresses, and we find that in Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. So let's look at Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, this condition of spiritual drift, if you will. So go to Hebrews 2, and let's look at the first four verses. You can find that printed in your bulletin as well. Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, uh, the writer of Hebrews gives us this warning, this warning, this, this exhortation about paying attention, paying attention to the promises of God lest you spiritually go adrift. What does he say? He says, therefore, pay close attention to what you've heard. This is for you, Wellspring. Hear this. Pay close attention to what you have heard lest you what? You drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. What is he saying here? Pay close attention to God's Word. Pay close attention to God's promises, lest you what? Drift away from these promises. What does that say? That you've got to stay connected to the promises of God's Word, right? You've got to feed on God's Word. Otherwise, you'll go spiritually adrift. So there's this warning, right? If we don't hold fast to God's Word, if we don't cling to Jesus and His Word, we will drift. You know, I think we like to view ourselves as a certain kind of spiritual animal. I'm a spiritual lion. I'm a spiritual tiger. No, you're a spiritual dumb sheep, what does God call you? Sheep. And what do sheep do? They drift. They run away from their shepherd, right? That's why the shepherd has a rod and a staff, not just to comfort the sheep, but to 
knock them over the head and bring them back into the fold. You're sheep. And sheep drift. We drift from the Lord. And so Jonah, in giving us his, uh, his failures, teaches us quickly this morning four ways to beware of drift in your life as a believer. And so we're going to see just quickly kind of learn from Jonah's failures this morning because they're instructive. And the first instruction he gives us is that don't let your feelings. It's almost like Jonah the prophet standing up here this morning and saying, listen, I want to teach you. I want you to learn from my struggles and my failings. They're instructive. So I almost picture Jonah saying, listen, Wellspring, Stephen brought me here from, you know, the uh, telephone booth of time travel here, and bam, here he is. And Jonah's standing before you and saying, don't let your feelings trump faith. Don't let your feelings trump faith. What does Jonah say in the first, uh, first three verses, particularly verse 3? What, is, what, what does it say? Jonah says, he goes down to Joppa. And what does it say that he found? He found a ship, right? <laughs> he happened just to find a ship. And so he found exactly what he wanted, didn't he? When the storms of life come, sometimes it's true when you feel this, when disappointment or rejection or suffering comes towards us, right? And when horizon looks bleak for us, sometimes it's tempting for us to check out something else, isn't it? Instead of turning to the Lord. And it seems like an attractive option when suffering comes your, your way. When you no longer feel appreciated, right? And you're, you're just tempted to slip away from the ties and the commitments to, that defined you as a believer, your community. And what did Jonah do when, when God's call that he didn't agree with, he didn't like, came his way? He went and tried to do something different, didn't he? The ship to Tarshish looked attractive for Jonah as it was heading into a storm. So Jonah found what he was looking for. It's like everything seemed to fall in place for Jonah, right? He just happened to find a ship headed to Tarshish as he went down to the docks in Joppa. It seemed to Jonah that this was a confirmation that he had made the right decision to flee from the Lord, right? Jonah felt like this was a friendly providence from God. Hey, maybe, maybe God's cutting me some slack here as I'm running from Him. Maybe God is cutting me some slack on this call in my life. But it wasn't a friendly providence, was it? It almost caused Jonah's death, right? You go to Jonah chapter 2, and what does he say? He's saying that I am in darkness. I am in despair. It's almost leading to my death. So this friendly providence that Jonah thought was friendly almost led to his death. Sinclair Ferguson said this about this. Let me read this. He said, The ship that Jonah boarded was not meant to be a way to escape from God's clearly revealed word, but instead was a frighteningly terrible instrument in the hands of a God, of his God, to bring his servant Jonah back to his senses, Right? So this was one of the many tests that God sent Jonah's way. What does that tell us about God? That God relentlessly pursues the sons and daughters that he loves. We talked about this before in Hebrews, that God disciplines the sons and daughters that he loves, doesn't he? God loves you enough to sometimes even send frowning providences into your life to once again arrest your heart and your attention. See, there's always going to be a ship in the harbor ready to take you in the wrong direction. There will always be be a ship in the harbor ready to take you in the wrong direction. So don't go ship shopping, right? Looking for that ship to take you in the wrong direction. Don't confuse opportunity with the will of God, right? And there's some very uh, huge spiritual principles here for us. First of all, don't let your feelings or your experiences, even good religious experiences that seem good, trump biblical faith. 
In other words, don't always trust your circumstances if you're resisting God's word, okay? Don't trust your circumstances in your life if you're already resisting God's word for you. And don't trust your conscience either. Now, how does God fundamentally communicate his will towards us? How? Is it your feelings? No. How does God fundamentally, fundamentally communicate his will for us? Through his word, right? That's how he fundamentally communicates his will. So, as he fundamentally communicates his will through us, through your word, that's how, through his word, that's how you know, that's how your conscience is bound. That's how you know God's direction for your life. First John says this, you're probably familiar with this verse. The writer John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. And I think there is application for us there of testing our hearts. Lord, is this truly from you? Is this in line with what your word says? Don't be guided by providences or your emotions when you're refusing to be guided by God's word. Do run to God's word. What does he say? Thy word is a lamp to my feet, right? And it is a light to my path. I think of what Proverbs 3 says, that trust your heart, you know, seek the Lord and he will make your paths straight, right? So first you go, how do I know God's direction for my life? It's not in my feelings where I feel good about this, but test the spirits. Go to God's word first, right? It is a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. Trust godly mentors to speak into your life. Do you have folks in your life who are more mature in their faith, who are maybe even older than you in age, turn to them. Seek mentors in your life. Seek folks who know the Lord Jesus and who are mature in their faith and who can speak truth into your life. Don't be afraid to do that. And that's how you can discern the Lord's direction and will for you. You see, the power of self-deception is, I think, what we're seeing going on here in Jonah's life, right? Jonah walked into this world of self-deception and it wasn't easy for him to escape, was it? Jonah's conscience was all of a sudden tweaked in a bad way so that he could no longer distinguish good from evil. He started to go spiritually adrift, if you will. And what does God's Word say? That the beginning of the, beginning of the, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? And losing that fear is the beginning of folly. And so we learn that Jonah was running from the Lord and, and getting himself into trouble, becoming spiritually adrift. And then secondly, we see that Jonah has this conscience in crisis. You know, what was Jonah doing during, when the storm came, right? What, did, what was Jonah doing during the storm? Let's go to verse 5 and read what was going on with Jonah here during the storm. As the storm came upon him, what was Jonah doing? Let's read verse 5. It says, verse 4, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up, verse 5, then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it. But Jonah had done what? He had gone down to the inner part of the ship and had laid down fast asleep. There's something called the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. So it was written in Greek, translation of the Old Testament. The way the Septuagint translates this is really fascinating. It says that Jonah went down into the ship laid down, went fast asleep, and the sailors found him because of his snoring. That's literally what the Septuagint says. So Jonah was sleeping so soundly and so loudly, he was snoring, and that was the homing beacon, if you will, for the sailors to be able to find where he was. So here we have Jonah, this prophet who had this previous ministry with the Jews. He had felt God's presence, God's affections, intimacy with the Lord, and he loved it. And all of a sudden, we meet this prophet whose godly conscience 
you would think would have prevented him from running from the Lord in this way. What happened to Jonah's conscience? Proverbs talks about the little foxes that spoil the vines. And the picture of that proverb is this, that over and over these foxes come and they nibble away, just little nibbles, little nibbles at this old, grand, established grapevine that has a huge base. And those little foxes come and nibble after nibble after nibble over time, what happens? That grapevine is destroyed. And that's a picture here of Jonah. When the moment of crisis came to Jonah, he was in no condition, was he, to hear his conscience. His conscience was in no condition even to speak back to him, right? And God, in His grace, because He's a relentlessly pursuing God, sent severe things into Jonah's life to once again arrest his attention, to once again tweak his conscience. In fact, uh, in the the Hebrew, if if you read Jonah in the Hebrew, it's really interesting. Hebrew poetry and even just Hebrew literature loves the idea of parallelism, okay? where it takes one idea and then it'll, it'll repeat itself in a little bit of a different way uh, later on, but it gives you this parallel that points back to one particular singular truth. And so there's a parallel here. If you look in verses 1 and 2, what does God do? The word of the Lord came to Jonah, right? God came to Jonah and said to him, Jonah, arise, right? A particular word I want you to focus in on, arise. Jonah, go to Nineveh. Arise, go to Nineveh, Right? Call out to Nineveh. Then you go to verse 6. Look at what verse 6 says. So the captain came to him and said, What do you mean, you sleeper? See the word? Arise. Call out to your God. Arise, Jonah. That's significant. Parallelism right here. It wants you to get the idea of God coming to you and saying, Arise. Maybe your spiritual conscience is slumbering right now. And God is giving you this invitation, friends. Arise. Arise, come to me. Don't give in, don't let your heart harden, but arise, beloved, come to me. Keep short accounts, right, with God and your conscience, because if you don't, and we see this played out in Jonah's life, you're once sensitive conscience to the Lord and sensitive to God's Word and sensitive to the Holy Spirit as you sin, as those little foxes nibble away at the grapevines, your conscience becomes more deadened and more deadened. And once again, you're sensitive or your once sensitive conscience becomes a hardened conscience. And once again, you begin to fail to respond to God's hand. You begin to fail to respond to God's voice. And so Jonah warns us, keep your account short for the Lord. Keep your heart before the Lord constantly. And then the third way we see Jonah's fleeing teaches us about this uh, beware of spiritual drift is thirdly, don't be ashamed of your situation. or Don't be ashamed of who you are. Let's look at Jonah 6 through 9. This is really interesting, Jonah's interaction with the sailors here and the captain. Verse 6. So the captain came and said to Jonah, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give, you a, give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, and who was talking here? Verse 7. wasn't Jonah and the sailors and the captain. It was the captain talking with his sailors, kind of having a conference together. They said to one another, Come. Let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, and notice these questions that they asked Jonah. Then they said, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. First question. What is your occupation? Second question. Where do you come from? Third question. What is your country? Fourth question. And of what people are you? Fifth question. And Jonah said, I am a Hebrew... I fear the Lord, 
the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. So the, the sailors and the captain asked Jonah five questions. Jonah, who's responsible for this? What's your occupation? Where do you come from, Jonah? What is your country? From what people are you? And then Jonah answers their questions, all of their questions, all five. Well, actually, no. He answers four of their questions, doesn't he? Now, I'm a Hebrew. I'm from Israel. I worship the God of, of Israel, right? But which question does Jonah not answer? The question of, Jonah, what is your occupation? Isn't that interesting? Why does Jonah not answer that particular question? What is your occupation? The reason he couldn't answer that question is because he couldn't answer that question. He couldn't answer it because he was no longer a prophet of the Lord. He had blown his witness. He was running from the Lord, and Jonah, in good conscience, couldn't answer that question, right? And that has huge implications for us. When we sin and when we run from the Lord, you're not running from the Lord in a vacuum, right? You don't sin in a vacuum, and sin just affects you. Your sin and what you do and when your disobedience and running from the Lord affects others around you, right? You don't sin in a vacuum. You don't rebel. You don't run from the presence of the Lord in a vacuum. Your decisions don't just affect you, but they affect your family. They affect your spouse, right? They affect your children. Uh, others breathe in the atmosphere that you excel. I mean, in this room, don't be grossed out, but we're breathing each other's air, Right? You breathe in and then you breathe out. And that's a very spiritual illustration that we breathe in and we breathe out our affections for the Lord or our disaffections for the Lord. Others breathe in and breathe out the atmosphere that you speak or that you live out. Your children, they breathe in the atmosphere of your home life, right? That's convicting and that's challenging, right? And Jonah couldn't answer this question, what is your occupation, right? He was ashamed, all of a sudden ashamed. His conscience was tweaked. And Jonah was ashamed of his calling, right? So beware of the lies of the enemy and of, of the culture and of our flesh that would, would encourage you to go adrift from what God says about you and what God's calling you to do, right? God says, I created you for relationship. I've created you to be in intimacy with me. I've created you to be in community with other believers where you will hear the message that you are valued, Right? God has prepared even works for you to do before the beginning of time, Paul says in Ephesians. But Jonah runs from the Lord and begins to be ashamed of his calling, right? And then lastly, the fourth way we see Jonah teaches us to beware of drift is that Jonah forgot God's sovereignty. Look at verse 12. What does he say? He says, he said to the sailors, to the captain, pick me up, hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon, upon you guys. It's almost like Jonah saying, listen, God's got no more use for me now. I've blown it. I've rebelled. I've run from the Lord. I'm running from the Lord. I've turned from His presence. What can God do for me now? How can God use me now? It's almost like Jonah was despairing of future usefulness. You know, maybe that's you. Maybe you're running from the Lord right now. Maybe you're not walking with Jesus and you think, I've really blown it, right? I've really done some stupid stuff. How could God use me now? And I think that's the picture of Jonah. God, I, I can't be used anymore. I used to be a prophet the good old days, but I'm not walking with you. I'm running from you and just throw me into the sea. I'm, I'm useless. I'm useful. I don't have any future usefulness. Hurl me into the sea. I think Jonah he was even struggling with his identity as a believer, right? And I think that's true of us. That's what 
drifting from the Lord often instills as we wonder, God, am I even a Christian? Am I even walking with you? And it's interesting to see there's an amazing contrast here that even these sailors, even this captain who are pagan, who don't even know the Lord, God is using them to, to give Jonah the message of salvation and redemption. There's this amazing contrast here, right? Here we see downtrodden and despairing and disobedient Jonah who is despairing of his life. And then we see these pagan sailors. Guess what they were doing? They were doing everything in their power to save Jonah, weren't they? Trying their hardest to row back. Trying to throw their valuable things that cost them overboard to lighten the ship, right? Doing everything in their power in order to save the situation and save Jonah. And then they begged God for Jonah's for pardon because they knew that they would have to ultimately throw Jonah over the side of the boat. And so they hurled him into the sea, committing Jonah into the tender mercies of his God. So where does that leave us this morning? What's the application for us this morning here at Wellspring? I think we would be missed the point of this whole story in Jonah's biography here if, if we didn't ask this question. Is there something of Jonah's life that's reflected in my spiritual life right now? Is there something in Jonah's biography that's reflected in my biography? Where have I turned from the presence of the Lord? Where have I turned from God's words? And maybe I'm beginning to even see some of the effects of that, turning from God and His call in my life, turning from God and His word. And I'm beginning to even see some of the negative consequences and effects of that in my own story, in my biography. Maybe God is speaking to you now in your life and He is even in His grace bringing some dark and hard providences into your life right now. My friend, this message is for you. These promises that He is a God who relentlessly pursues is for you. And that's my prayer that you would seek Him out now. So here's what I want to do this morning. Uh, I wanted originally to sing a hymn uh, by Charles Wesley, O Jesus, Full of Grace and Truth, but... It's such a difficult hymn to sing as far as the tune. Uh, you know, I, I couldn't even work it out as a musician. And so here's what I want to do. Instead, I want to read these promises of this hymn, O oh Jesus, full of grace and truth to you this morning. So here's what I'd like for you to do. I'd love for you just to close your eyes. Don't get too comfortable. Close your eyes. And let me read these promises, these truths of this hymn to you this morning. This invitation that if you're running from the Lord if you're spiritually adrift, that you would hear God's call, arise, come back to me this morning. So just receive these promises this morning. Let these promises flow over you like a soothing, healing balm. Here, here's the hymn of Jesus, full of grace and truth. Oh Jesus, full of truth and grace, you are more full of grace than I am of sin. Yet once again I seek thy face. Would you open thine arms and take me in and freely my backslidings heal and love the faithless sinner still? Thou knowest the way to bring me back, my fallen spirit to restore. Oh, for thy truth and mercy's sake, forgive and bid me sin no more. The ruins of my soul repair and make my heart a house of prayer. The stone to flesh again convert the veil of sin again remove. Sprinkle thy blood upon my heart and melt it by thy dying love. This rebel heart by love subdue and make it soft and make it new. 
Give to mine eyes refreshing tears and kindle my relentings now. Fill my soul with filial fears. To thy sweet yoke my spirit bow. Bend by thy grace, O bend or break the iron sinew that's in my neck. Ah, give me, Lord, the tender heart that trembles at the approach of sin. A godly fear of sin impart, implant and root it deep within, that I may dread thy gracious power and never dare to offend thee more. God, thank you for those precious words of that hymn. And Lord, we long, I pray we would long to not sin against you, to, Lord, to not rebel and run from you. But I pray that, Lord, we would submit to you. That, Father, even if by your grace, maybe you are bringing some hard and sad and frowning providences and sufferings into our life, Lord, not to harm us, Lord, but ultimately to rescue us. Because you love us, Lord. You relentlessly pursue the ones that you love. And Lord, thank you for that truth. Thank you for that grace. And I pray that, Lord, we would submit and stop running. I pray that we would take off our running shoes, if we will, and that we would surrender ourselves to you. Lord, we love you. We honor you. We need you, Jesus. Thank you that you would love us enough to give us a biography of a spiritual failure who, Lord, you loved and pursued. And you did amazing and dramatic things to give him that message of grace. Would you do the same with us? Thank you for your tender and kind mercies to us, Lord. We love you and we pray these things in your name, Jesus.